Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, I am hiking along the Mackenzie River in Oregon. As far as I can tell, I'm the only person for a couple of miles. I came out here for a day of solitude instead of isolation. And I'm just thinking about how different it feels to be alone in the woods and alone in a house. When I'm in the house, I'm thinking about all the things I can't do, missing all the people I can't see. But out here, I don't feel any of that. It's just peaceful and beautiful. Anyway, I hope everybody's staying safe and healthy. Hey, Chris. This is Jack here in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I'm 20 years old, and uh, I just, I've just i been listening to your podcasts and uh, read all your books in the last few months. I had finally gotten out of the house and gotten, uh, gotten to live my own life a bit and uh, inspired by you and your, your way of thinking uh, has really helped me. You've taught me more than I've learned in any school or anything like that that's kind of sad but anyways i uh, just wanted to have a memo um i recently lost my job uh so and then the coronavirus is you know messing everything up so I've, i'm having to move back home to texas uh so it's hard times but just wanted to let you know that uh you and all the other tangentially speaking listeners out there um, that how much we appreciate your podcast and uh, everything that you have to tell us. Anyways, thanks, Chris. Okay, Chris, this is Lori and Seho. We're at Kusa slash Saheli Falls in Oregon. Um, you and I met in Seattle at your little meetup group there. And Seho is the reason that I know who you are. Say hi, Seho. Hi, Christopher. So we're watching all this water tumble down in our tumbling little altered brains and just having so much gratitude for the winter that people endured while I was sitting on a beach in Spain and um, watching the water move down through the mountains. So thanks for all you do. Keep it up. I hope that your travels are amazing and maybe we'll see you in the van soon. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of this weird-ass podcast I host. It's called Tangentially Speaking. Uh, if you follow me on um, Instagram or Twitter or you get my monthly newsletter, you may already know this. But for those of you who are not uh, doing any of those things, I have decided I'm going to change my logo. Uh, if you look at your iPod app, you see it's a sort of a mustard-colored uh, logo and uh, it features a pretty cool Ralph Steadman uh, style uh, lettering which I, I like but it also has a mouth with spittle coming out of it now, I've never really liked that uh, image uh, I mean tangentially speaking I guess it suggests something about speaking but it it, it, it suggests speaking spraying while you're speaking which is not an attractive quality um 
It always reminds me of a time, I, I think I must have been in a frat party or something back in college, and I was talking to someone, and the music was really loud, and the person I was talking to was wearing glasses, and I actually saw the arc of the spit fly out of my mouth and land on this dude's glasses. Um, and he pretended he, he was all cool about it. He, he pretended he was just like listening to me and just, you know, casually took off his glasses and sort of, uh, you know, wiped them on his shirt or something. But for some reason, I still cringe about that, uh, you know, 40 years later or whatever it is. Um, yeah, crazy crazy anyway i'm not into the the spitting talking image um so i'm offering 250 dollars. i will i will pay 250 dollars to whoever creates the image that i replace it with um i know that's less than a professional uh designer would get for something like this and i don't mean to be a cheapskate uh it's just an offer if you do this kind of stuff and you want to throw something together please keep the same color scheme i like the black on yellow and i think in most apps people just look for the color and they recognize tangentially speaking so um i've already received a bunch of them i'm gonna not decide till mid-june so june 15th is the cutoff date and again no stress but if you're up for it if if you have an idea if an image comes to your mind of uh, something that encapsulates the spirit of this podcast in some way other than spittle. Uh, I'd love to see it. So uh, black on mustard, same color scheme, but then whatever you want to do. Uh, you can send it to us at uh, ChristopherAssistant at gmail.com. And if you want to send an intro, as always, you can send those to intro at tangentiallyspeaking.com. All right. Uh, this episode is with... A fascinating woman uh, by the name of Crystal Ball. Um, her her name, I, I, those of you who've never heard of her are thinking, what? Crystal Ball? Well, her father is a physicist who did his dissertation work on crystalline structures. So it's a, it's a more interesting backstory than you might have thought for her name. She uh, is a political uh i don't know what to call her she was a she ran for congress herself she um is a political analyst uh she was on msnbc for a while she's been on real time with bill maher she's been all over the place and these days she has a show uh called the rising on hill tv uh, you can see most of their segments uh, are up on youtube um, but you can, if you want to watch the whole show, go to hilltv.com. Uh, you'll see uh, Rising uh, right up at the top of the page. And they do a show five days a week. She and um, her co-host, Sagar, uh, who, you know, it, it, the way it's set up is she's sort of from the left. He's sort of from the right. But they're both really smart, open-minded, objective, um, rational analysts of what's going on these days and as far as i can tell neither of them is beholden to any particular financial interest i mean i know they work at the hill which is a, a company and so that there's some sort of corporate um oversight but as uh crystal and i talk about in this conversation um given the way media works these days uh, it's interesting that mainstream media is becoming more and more homogenized and controlled and under the thumb of 
corporate interests. But if you're going through independent media, as uh, as I do, and and uh, as she certainly can if she ever runs into a problem um, working for a corporation. Uh, she has enough rank, uh, name recognition at this point and social media reach that, um, you know, if she did a YouTube show uh, like David Packman or someone like that, she'd have an immediate audience, a pretty considerable audience. So it's an, it's interesting how it seems like one part of the media landscape is becoming more and more commodified and uh, homogenized. And yet there's this other realm opening up in which there are virtually no restrictions other than, you know, copyright issues and things like that. Um, and so you see people like Joe Rogan signing this hundred million dollar deal which I haven't really talked about on the podcast yet. People keep asking me my opinion on that. Uh, I don't see, I don't see a problem. I mean, I, I worry for Joe, a hundred million dollars is a lot of fucking money. Uh, and it's not easy to keep your shit together, uh, with $1 million, much less a hundred, but he's been at this for a long time. He's been a public figure for a long time. He knows how it works and he stuck to his guns this far. And some, you know, I saw some stuff online like, Oh, corporate sellout, whatever. YouTube is owned by Google people, which is owned by what some other company. It's all owned by somebody. So, you know, he didn't sell out to Spotify. He just accepted their offer to move his shit over to their platform. Um, you know, unless he becomes... You know, unless he stops saying what he says, he stops getting high and he stops inviting weirdos like me on his show, uh, I don't really see the issue. If Spotify wants to pay him a hundred million bucks, uh, good for them. As long as they let him let Joe be Joe, uh, I don't I don't see how moving from one, you know, making money for one corporation to another matters. Uh, you know, it's honestly, if I were Joe, I probably would go the other direction, which is why I'm not Joe and never will be. Uh, you know, when I hear Joe reading ads, I think, dude, like, why bother? You know, and last time I was on a show, we talked about this. It was like, what's the point of having money if it doesn't buy you freedom from things you don't want to do? Um, and I, I don't know. I would guess that for him reading another fucking Squarespace ad, I mean, does he really want to do that? Because he doesn't have to. So I don't know. I, I, I've never understood rich people who go to work, but that's just me. And that's why I'll never be rich, I guess. Um, but here we are. Crystal ball. Fantastic. Uh, this, this podcast is very much about politics. It's about what's going on right now. It's about what's happening, you know, with the left, with Bernie, with the Bernie burnout. Um, and, uh, what's happening even, I think we even talk a, a bit about what's happening on the streets of Minneapolis. So I wanted to get this out right away, um, before, you know, 48 hours goes by and it's all old news because the news cycle is spinning so quickly these days. I tried to keep the conversation about, you know, move into more general issues about politics and, um, you know, the state of civilization. So those things will be evergreen, but we do talk about some current events. So, uh, I want to get this out right away. 
Uh, in other news, I wanted to let you know that I am leaving in the van uh, in a couple of days. And so I will throw up podcasts whenever I can find some Wi-Fi. I've got a bunch of them banked, so I'm going to be throwing them up. Hopefully, you know, maybe two or three a week for a while, because uh, I don't want people to, to have to wait so long for their uh, conversation to go out. Um, but, uh, you know, it all depends on Wi-Fi. I don't know what the situation is with Starbucks or, you know, if I can park in a Walmart and tap into their Wi-Fi. I don't know what I'm going to find out there. So we'll see how it goes. I'm going to be doing the same loop I've done before up into uh Eastern Oregon and Washington, Northern California a little bit, and then uh, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. So if you know of any uh, amazing places I should I should check out or, you know, a great camp spot that you know and you want to drop a pin and send it to me, I promise I will be discreet. I won't tell the world about it, um, and I will pack out all my garbage for sure. I'm not one of those people who leaves like clumps of toilet paper in the woods. Like, what the fuck is with those people? Anyway, uh, thank you for that. This episode is brought to you. <laughs> I'll see Joe doesn't have to do this, but uh, I actually like this stuff. It's Kettle and Fire. I think I might have mentioned before they make bone broths. But the way I got in, in contact with them was I knew about their stuff because a lot of my friends who are, you know, into healthy eating and um, you know, sort of paleo nutrition, uh, they use this stuff and they've told me about it, it comes in these little, uh, cartons. It's, um, uh, made from, uh, animals that are grass fed, free range, you know, the whole nine yards there and bone broth is incredibly good for you. It contains, uh, all sorts of vitamins and minerals that are really important to the body, but we don't, you know, we don't crunch up bones. We don't really eat bones. We don't split them and suck the marrow out the way our ancestors did. Um, and so we're not getting a lot of that goodness. So if you want that goodness, but you're not the kind of person who cracks a femur bone and sucks the marrow out of it, uh, check out kettle and fire bone broth. They have all sorts of interesting flavors, ginger and lemongrass, and, um, then just straight up beef. I've been using the chipotle beef one in my chili and it adds a really nice, uh, very light burn to the chili, which I like a lot. Um, so anyway, check them out kettleandfire.com they they don't have shops you can buy it in like whole foods and stuff um, but you can get it online and if you do order it online go to kettleandfire.com forward slash chris ryan and you'll get 15 percent off your first order when you use the code chris at checkout all right let's get into this conversation with crystal ball thank you for listening everybody i hope you're doing okay out there uh, miss you all. Uh, it's going to be weird doing the van trip this summer, the Vanthropology 2020 tour without the meetups, but I don't think we're going to be able to pull that off. So, um, we'll just, uh, try to do it virtually, I guess. I will be back at you very soon with another episode. Thanks for listening. I am going to play you out with a song called to Nije, I don't know, N-D-J-E. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. It's by a, a Cameroonian singer named Kaisa, K-A-I-S-S-A. Um, she's lived in Paris and New York 
and has um, performed with uh, a list of amazing world music stars, including Salif Keita, um, Papa Wimba, Cesaria Evora, Paul Simon. She's been around. So check out this tune by Kaisa. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks. Sanon, 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am with Crystal Ball. Thank you so much for taking some time to, to chat with us today, Crystal. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. You're a pro. You're, uh, you're someone who talks uh, to the public for a, a living. I guess I am too, although I feel like um, I always forget I'm talking to the public. Which can be a, <laughs> a probably, good thing. It's probably better that way. <laughs> well, it's better for them. I'm not sure it's better for me. Uh, you know, <laughs> like uh, I've been on Joe Rogan's show a bunch of times, and every time I go on there, I tend I forget because you know Joe's a friend, um, but our friendship happens online. So uh, I just feel like I'm catching up with a friend, and I forget there are a million people listening and. I invariably say something that makes me cringe later. Like, why did I say that? You know, well, but I that kind of feel like that's a, the, one of the secrets to his success, though, is making people <laughs> feel, you know, over the course of those hours, so comfortable that they just actually yeah. say what they're thinking. And then, you know, people kind of freak out about it. Right. Their stock price drops seven billion dollars or whatever happened to Elon <laughs> Musk when he got high. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, part of the part of the issue is that he wears you down. A part is that he makes you comfortable, and at least in my case, part of it is that he gets me high. So, you know, those are three <laughs> uh, mistakes when you're <laughs> talking to the public. Anyway, you've that had a very brave. Actually, that part is very brave. I don't think I would be that brave. Oh uh, well. Yeah, I sort of got myself into it. The first time I went on his show, um, you know, people who listen to my podcast have heard me talk about this before. In fact, last time I was on, I talked about it with him and sort of uh, filled him in on what was going on in my head. I didn't know who he was because I lived in Spain uh, for most of my life. And so, you know, I was, I was basically telling him the story about how out of touch I was, that I had no idea who Joe Rogan was when I agreed to go on his show. And then some friend of mine in Spain was like, oh, Joe Rogan. And so I was telling the story and I got halfway through it just to the point where I said, I, I had no idea who you were. And uh, then we got interrupted by the, the tech guys who wanted to do a sound check or something. And so he sort of looked at me and he just said, uh, so what'd you do? You Googled me or something? And I was like, yeah, but and the whole point of the story is that I'm out of touch, right? But I think he took it as like, oh, Mr. Big Author doesn't know who Joe Rogan is. Doesn't like, even know who I am. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So he took it as this kind of like alpha male struggle thing, um, which I didn't. <laughs> that's not at all what I was trying to do, you know. And so then he, he rolled a joint. And just before we started, he's like, you want to hit this joint? And I thought, man, if I don't hit the joint, I seal my fate as like total douchebag here on the show. <laughs> and so I kind of was pressured into it by my own screw up. And then I had <laughs> your own missteps. <laughs> I hadn't smoked any weed in, in quite a while. And of course, you know, I'm used to like this Spanish stuff that I was growing on my terrace and what Joe smoking is a whole different kind of turbocharged. Uh, so anyway, I, I ended up holding on to the bottom of my chair, trying not to fall off during the first hour of the interview. So, <laughs> like I said, a very brave move. Very brave. Fool, <laughs> foolish, I think, is the word you're looking for. Um, 
<laughs> so listen, you you came to my attention. I guess I'm, I probably saw you on MSNBC um, way back when. When were you when were you on MSNBC? Uh, from about 2010 to 2015. Right. Okay. So I probably that may have been the first time I you came to my attention. Um, and now I watch Rising every morning. Uh, I think you guys are, you know, from my perspective, you and Saga are the the most objective, um, just sort of, I don't know, neutral intelligence. You, you, I've seen you criticize and praise all different angles in politics and in, you know, every different side of what's going on. I really value what you're doing. I, I don't know any other outlet quite as um, consistently intelligent and balanced as you guys. So congratulations for that. Well, thank you. It means it really, really means a lot um, for you to say that it's something that we try to do. I mean, look, I'm not a neutral actor. I am sort of upfront about my ideology and where I stand politically. But I think what's different on our show is, you know, in the cable news world, you've got basically like CNN and MSNBC who are Trump is always bad and everything he does is routinely bad and Democrats are always good. And it's just this like Democrats versus Republicans dynamic. Fox News obviously is the exact opposite dynamic, but everybody's carrying water and covering for someone. And so our whole approach, which is not always easy to do, is to try to give credit um, across the spectrum when it's due and also to try to call bullshit on, you know, across the spectrum, wherever that is due, which is quite often, frankly, in this town. So I think that has been the, the dynamic that we've tried to stay true to every day. The fact that I'm on the left, Sagar's on the right, we both have kind of heterodox views within those, like, you know, the DR sphere, um, has made for a dynamic and a conversation that I think is different than what's happening elsewhere. But, you know, you probably watched the show this morning. We did a segment on, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and what's happening in Minneapolis and the protests that are unfolding and the riots that are unfolding. So we'll do that. And then we turned right around and did a segment on Tucker Carlson based yeah. on immigration stances, calling for primaries of sort of corporatist Republicans. And after we did those two segments, we kind of looked at each other and were like, you know, where else could you get that conversation on those topics in the same show? And so we feel we feel I mean, look, we don't always get it right. Like we're figuring this out every day, too. So I don't want to you know, I don't want to overhype it. But that is exactly what we are trying to do with the show. So thank you so much for saying that. Well, I think I think we've entered a new realm um, and I want to get your thoughts on on what's happening with media uh, in addition to politics, because I think they're kind of two different tracks that often intersect and affect each other in interesting ways. Um, but I, I feel like, uh, you know, you guys have done a few segments on Joe Rogan, how what a big deal it was when he sort of endorsed, endorsed Bernie Sanders and, you know, the controversy that played out around that. Um, and I think, you know, Joe, with his $100 million Spotify deal, it's, it's clear that the media landscape has changed fundamentally. And I think right. that when I say you guys are consistently, uh, whatever I said, neutral intelligence or, or you know, independently uh, critical thinking, 
I don't mean that you don't have an agenda or you pretend you don't have an agenda. I mean, your agenda is what you said is right up front. Like, look, I'm coming at this from the left. He's coming at it from the right and not in a firing line kind of way. I don't know if you're even old enough to know what firing line was. Um, but, yes. you know, where it's like your job is to represent this perspective for this, you know, fake debate or sparring session. Um, <laughs> but I just mean like, you know, Joe is upfront about who he is and his strengths and weaknesses. And I think you guys are doing the same thing. And I feel like. That's why podcasts are um, an increasingly important form of media, because most of them are not trying to package themselves. Um, you know, they're not focus group tested. They're, you know, it's just raw. And I think people it's almost like, you know, in terms of media, we've gone through packaged um, processed food so much that we're realizing that it, it we end up with intellectual obesity or, you know, no, I uh, think, th I think that's exactly the right analogy. It's funny. I was actually talking to my husband, but he made that exact same analogy of like big food and big media. It's like the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, the same sort of Disney-fied result and equally bad for you. In fact, you know, big media and the type of constraints that puts on your intellectual capacity is probably worse for you ultimately than the like industrialized food that we consume. But but I think you're exactly right. It's interesting. We covered, and this was not a story, honestly, that was super on my radar because I don't follow these food columnists. I'm not a big, like, I'm not a foodie. I'm not a big cook or any of that stuff. But there was this interesting story that bubbled up from the New York Times where their food columnist had made some sort of freewheeling comments that were really a, cons uh, a critique of consumerism and the commodification of literally everything. But she took a swipe at Chrissy Teigen, and she also took a swipe at Marie Kondo. Now, I don't know if you follow Marie Kondo and the whole Spark Joy thing. The whole essence of her books and her movement is to declutter, to get rid of the things in your life that don't spark joy, don't bring you joy. Well, as part of her now international success, she has a online store where she's selling her own sort of expensive line of clutter, <laughs> which is funny, right? And it's an yeah. interesting thing to talk about. And Alison Roman, in a very colorful way, talked about both Chrissy Teigen and sort of the commodification that she's done and also Marie Kondo. And there was this whole outcry online about her comments and an implication that they were sort of racist because she went after two women of color. And the New York Times, ultimately, um, she lost her position there because of this online outrage, hmm. which to me is just a perfect example of how how safe and how careful and how much you have to color within these normal boundaries within traditional elite media, legacy media, whatever you want to call it. And so if th that means that they've left a whole vast landscape and ecosystem to be filled with voices like yours, voices like what we're trying to do on Rising, voices like Joe's that, you know, that aren't so safe, that don't have those sort of, you know, safety nets under them and uh, a narrow bounds within which the conversation can occur or a narrow ideology within which the conversation can occur. So, um, you know, I saw I saw someone making a point online. It may have even been Ben Smith, who was the New York Times media columnist, who's actually very interesting over there right now. But basically, the point is Joe Rogan and podcasts and alternative media are going to become the mainstream media in the same way that 
the political blogosphere used to be very sort of peripheral. It used to be alter. It used to be the alternative media, and basically all got incorporated into the mainstream and became the mainstream. That that is sort of the the path and the trajectory that podcasts and alternative media are ultimately on, which I thought was a pretty interesting um, parallel and pretty smart point. Now, do you think? Do you read that as? podcasts then the independence and the the rawness of po- podcasts are going to get sanded away and co-opted as they become mainstream or does the stream move to that sort of rawness that's a good question it's probably a little of both honestly but you know uh joe is is a perfect example where he has gotten so big that legacy media can't really ignore him anymore. But it took him becoming, you know, basically the biggest podcast in the world with now a $100 yeah. million dollar Spotify deal before that even happened, right? So um, I think the point is that there will be partly co-optation and acquisition of the properties that are working, some of the sanding off of those authentic and raw edges, but also some of just incorporating the conversation that's happening there and the news that's being made in those spaces into the coverage that's happening on the mainstream. It's really interesting. Um, One of the things that we've noted at Rising is because we have this traditional media brand of the Hill that is, you know, that's our platform where we are. When we break news on our show, even though we're less established than some of the other uh, YouTube political shows, it penetrates more because we have that direct sort of entree into elite and legacy media. So if we have someone on who says something newsworthy, it actually pops and lands and gets incorporated into legacy media. Um, it's much harder, for example, the Young Turks are another much larger, much, much larger than us political YouTube brand. They don't have that mainstream connectivity. So when they break news, which they do quite often, they have real investigative journalists who do work there. It's harder to get that news heard. So that mm. kind of connectivity, I think, between you know, what is now considered alternative, what is now considered mainstream, I think they'll be more meshing in that way as well. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, you know, to look at how, you know, you look at the rebelliousness of the 60s, the countercultural movements of the 60s and how quickly they became Coca-Cola commercials and, Mm -hmm. you know, get what capitalism does better than any other system is co-opt rebellion and turn it into, um, you know, an advertising slogan. Um, yeah. It's interesting to Black look Lives at. Black Lives Matter brought to you by Wells Fargo. I mean, literally, <laughs> really, <laughs> really. Uh, yeah. Um, and it's interesting when you were talking about, uh, you know, the the space that's been left to be filled by new voices or voices from outside in media because of the sort of hyper um hyper vigilance and the fear of offending anyone and you know all that kind of appeal to the common denominator thing that happens 
uh, when a lot of money's involved. I was thinking of, of politics and what happened, you know, where did Trump come from, right? Isn't it exactly the same mechanism where you see these politicians, you know exactly what they're going to say. They're super careful not to say anything the least bit interesting or unusual or challenging to any corporate interest. And so some bozo comes along who says, fuck all that. You know, I don't like Mexicans and I blah, 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 whatever it is that he said. I don't even think it's the substance of what he said. It's his disdain for the establishment that's so appealing to so many people. I think that's exactly right. It was that willingness to just say F you to all the, you know, it's funny because there's a lot of hand wringing about how he's breaking the norms and guardrails of democracy. You know, there's that's like something you hear repeatedly on cable news. And that's exactly what people brought him in to do. Um, now, I have obviously my own problems and critiques of Donald Trump. And I think, as you said, he's sort of this clownish, buffoonish bozo um, who doesn't really have an ideology or an agenda outside of his own ego and like winning the day. But that was exactly what people hired him to do. And even as they say, like, I wish you'd put away the phone and I wish he'd act more presidential. In reality, what they loved was the fact that he would break those rules, spoken and unspoken all the time. And there was a funny dynamic, too, where people felt like he was telling it like it is or shooting straight, even as it was clear that oftentimes the things that he would say were completely made up, garbage, lies, etc. Yeah. But it was like because he would say the thing that no consultant or pollster or focus group would ever tell you to say, that was taken as a sign that sort of subbed in for this idea of he's telling it like it is. Because if he wasn't like, why would you say that if it wasn't right. what you really thought, if it really wasn't really like what you were thinking and feeling in that moment? I think a another dynamic that I've been thinking about lately as we watch the coronavirus pandemic unfold and, you know, the way that different states and governments and political actors have handled the response is the shallow nature and sort of theatrical performance of our politics. So the example I've been thinking of in particular uh, is Andrew Cuomo in New York, governor of New York, who, of course, you know, Lucky for him, has a brother with a primetime show on CNN, so he's able to go on there, and mm. they have a very chummy kind of dynamic. He doesn't really get pressed on any of what's going on in New York. He gives these press conferences where he's able to project this big sort of boss man energy, very confident, very authoritative energy that people find comforting during this time. And so his approval ratings are sky high, some of the highest in the country, something like 80% approval rating on his handling of the coronavirus crisis. Meanwhile, if you actually look at the substance of his response, I mean, on an obvious level, New York had the worst outbreak in the entire country. I'm not trying to lay all of that at his feet. Of course, some factors are out of his control or anyone's control, but his decision-making certainly played a role in that. And we have specific examples. I mean, the early days up until just a couple weeks ago, he was requiring nursing homes to take back in coronavirus patients. That led to thousands of deaths of elderly nursing home residents. In fact, if you look at 
the coronavirus crisis, it has been largely a story of nursing home death. 43% of deaths from coronavirus, according to one analysis, are from nursing homes. There's another story out about how, you know, he took a bunch of money into an affiliated pack for his reelection from the hospital and nursing home lobby. They then pushed him to put in this immunity for their own executives um, for nursing homes with regards to this pandemic so they couldn't be held accountable. And that sort of liability shield correlates across the country with increased nursing home deaths. So the point of all of this is that on the substantive level, he's been terrible. I mean, terrible decision making, helped exacerbate some of the worst parts of the crisis, shut down too slowly got in this pissing match feud with Bill de Blasio, who's also done a poor job, which is part of why he wanted to keep things open longer because de Blasio Mm. wanted to shut things down. But none of that seems to be registering for anyone. And in part, it's a media failure because he hasn't been held accountable. He hasn't been pressed on these things. You know, he goes on CNN and has these chummy conversations with his brother. Part of it, though, too, I mean, I think we have to do our own self-reflection about how hollow and shallow our politics have become if it's really enough for us that someone can stand up in front of a a press conference and, you know, project confidence. And that's really all that we're looking for. And I think there's an element of that in the Trump phenomenon as well, because this is obviously a supremely confident person. And the fact that he could just get up on stage and say, I alone could fix it with total and utter like conviction and confidence and people go, okay, lack of irony. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really, I, I I think that dynamic in our politics right now is maybe one of the most um, troubling to me of, of the moment. There's a lot to be troubled about, but that particular dynamic where we've just allowed it to become such about so much more theater and presentation than any sort of policy or substance is, is deeply concerning to me. I, I don't know if this is just a, a function of my age or not. Um, I was born in 1962. Uh, so in 1980, I was 18. I was my first year of college. Um, but I feel like the election of Ronald Reagan was where this country took a turn that we are now seeing the the final results of. You know, mm-hmm. I think w- what you just described, this... Um, reliance on the theater of leadership rather than leadership, true leadership, uh, the appearance of confidence rather than any sort of justifiable reason to be confident, any intelligence, any (laughs) education, any track record. Um, You know, I remember Ronald Reagan standing, you know, talking, debating with Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter is a fucking nuclear physicist. You know, your father's a physicist, isn't he? He is. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, smart guy, right? A guy who who knows, you know, when you do physics, you get a right answer or a wrong answer. There's no ambiguity about it. Uh, solar panels on the White House, uh, you know, energy saying we need to turn away from uh, dependence on the oil from the Middle East and be more efficient and, you know, wear a sweater and turn down the thermostat and all this, you know, go metric. He wanted to go metric, for God's sake. And, <laughs> you know, the the shenanigans, I mean, I don't know where you are on, on so-called conspiracy theories, but the evidence that uh, George Bush through that election, you know, the whole, uh, what was it called? The, um, where they were trading the weapons to the Iranians, 
you Iran know, Contra. Iran Contra. You know, there's evidence that they negotiated with the Iranians to hold the hostages longer than they would have yeah. until Reagan yeah. was inaugurated. I mean, the whole thing was so wag the wag the dog, you know. Um, yeah. And trickle down economics, which uh, uh, David Stockman, who who designed that whole program two years later, came out and said that was all nonsense. I never believed it. Nobody believes it. We're still dealing with that. 40 years and it's later. infected. It's it's a very, very well funded ideology. Um, that sort of, you know, libertarian economic philosophy is the most well-funded interest group in this town, which is why you see, you know, not just it dominating the Republican Party and, you know, even certainly in the Trump administration, even though he ran on a different sort of economic approach, ultimately he's been completely co-opted by those same sort of pro-corporatist forces. But not only has it infected them, it's infected most of the Democratic Party. And that was the, you know, the Bill Clinton innovation in the, the 90s and basically let's turn away from our uh, historic base of labor unions and this kind of working class coalition. Let's realign ourselves around this rising affluent suburban white collar professional class and let's take with that the corporate money um, you know, to, to fund our campaigns, like let's have this alliance with Wall Street and with Silicon Valley. And all of that has meant that that trickle down ideology um, and the fact that it's so well funded and so pervasive within both of the parties means that we've come to this sort of bipartisan corporatist consensus in this town, which comes out in moments like this. I mean, the response to this crisis from an economic perspective and from a healthcare perspective, from a human being perspective, has been absolutely atrocious. And you look at the very first bill that passed, the biggest piece of the economic response and stimulus. You got four trillion that goes to the, the biggest players, you know, they're well taken care of. Boeing gets custom written legislation so that they can get capitalized with promises they're not going to lay off their workforce. Of course, now we learn they are going to lay off parts of their workforce. And those forces were so well prepared to take advantage of this crisis. They had it all locked and loaded and ready to go. And there was nobody on the other side representing workers, representing small business to make sure that they were going to be okay and taken care of in this pandemic. And that's really honestly the way that this town runs. It should be lost on no one that there wasn't a single recorded no vote on that bill from either party in the Senate. I mean, everyone voted for it. Um, and, you know, so that is very much still that that Reagan era ideology and the the organization and the structures that that back it and push it is still very much the dominant ethos and ideology in this town. Frank Zappa said politics is the entertainment division of the military industrial complex. Hmm. Um, and I kind of feel, you know, I often say that the Democrat, well, you lived in Washington your whole life. Do you remember the Harlem Globetrotters? Are they still playing? I yeah, I think know. they are. Yeah. Okay. So there's a team that plays against them. The Washington Nationals, I think. Generals, the Washington General. Generals. 
Those are the Democrats. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Their job is to pretend it's a game. Yeah. But they lose. Their job is to lose. And even when they win, as you said, with Clinton, we still lose. There is no one representing right. the average working class or even middle class progressive American in, in the American political system. Um, you know, maybe uh, AOC is the latest one who's going to break our hearts in a few years already seems to be from the coverage I've seen on your show. I, I first met Bernie Sanders uh, in 1981 when he came and spoke at this college I went to in upstate New York. He was the uh, mayor of Burlington at the time. Hmm. And he said exactly the same things that he's been you know, saying in the last year. Um, so there's no question, as, as our friend Joe said, Bernie's consistent. There's no bullshit. He said the same thing. He believes the same thing. You look at his life. His life is like Jimmy Carter, like he walks the walk, right? Yeah. What the hell happened? How did he I saw your piece um, before he dropped out saying now is not the time yeah. to drop out. If I were sitting across a poker table from Bernie Sanders, I would take all his money immediately. The guy does not understand mm -hmm. power. He doesn't understand That's betting. It. He doesn't understand bluffing. He doesn't understand any of these things. Is he for real? What what do you what's your take on him? I imagine you've met him. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's I think he's for real in the way that you say, like, I think he's very genuine. I think that he believes the actions he's taken are truly in the nation's best interest. You know, I think in that way, he's a moral actor. Um, but, you know, I remember this moment on the campaign trail and this really sticks with me. There was a man. I don't know if you watched this video. Uh, I think it was in Las Vegas. This man who stood up and was like. You know, things are so dire for me and I don't have the money for the, the medicine that I need. And I'm in such pain that I literally want to take my own life and is, you know, tearfully saying this. And I think about that, man, like that's what at its at its best, the the Sanders movement was about saying we've had enough of making excuses for why in the richest country, you know, on Earth that we can't have this man and so many million more like him just have the basic human rights that everyone should be entitled to of, you know, a decent wage, a decent living, decent health care. Like that's what it was all about. And so for me, it's, it's deeply painful, deeply inconsistent to privilege your friendship with Joe Biden and other establishment Democrats over that fight. And I do think that at some level that is what happened. And it's look, it's a really human thing. You get to know people over a lot of years. These your colleagues in, in the Senate. You get to become friends and it becomes very hard to criticize their policies directly as like this person who is a friend of mine who I know, but this person has done things that have deeply hurt and damage people. And that's the reality with, with Joe Biden and frankly, with a lot of the Democrats. Bernie's very good at the, the high level structural critique, right? The millionaires, the billionaires and the rig system, like he's very good with that. But when it 
whenever, whether it was with Hillary or with Joe or with Elizabeth Warren or with anyone else, when it comes to a direct personal critique, he's just not willing because it's uncomfortable to go there. And so during the election, that was certainly a problem. And there were people within his team. There were voices like mine on the outside saying, look, Joe is the real threat. Like, you have to prosecute the case here, even though, yes, that makes you uncomfortable. That makes everyone uncomfortable. It's risky. Sure. All of that. But you have to prosecute the case. And so that never happened. And then when he gets out of the race so early and when even beyond that, like I can, I can understand we're in the middle of a pandemic there wasn't much that could be done. I, okay, I, I can live with that. But then that you don't even try to fight for more. And you go that extra level of not only are we going to fight for more, not fight for more, but anyone who doesn't get on board right away right. with the politician who doesn't represent the values that we were fighting for, that that's irresponsible, I think is the word that he used. I mean, that was... That was not only hard to take, but that more than anything else, I think, destroyed all the energy of the movement when the the leader at that point of the movement turns around and says, basically, you all are irresponsible, turns on his own people, on his own movement. I mean, that was that really crushed the energy on the left um, right there. I also think and we've talked about this on the show, too. To your point about not understanding power, I think after 2016, when he was blamed for Trump, which was stupid, which was a bad faith argument, which was never fair or the case, et cetera, I really think that that sort of got in his head, though. And so from the beginning, it was always, of course, I'll back whoever the Democratic nominee is. Of course, I'll take the unity pledge. Of course, I'm going to make my people fall in line. Of course, of course, of course. And so the moment that you do that and you don't say, well, if you, you know, if you give us something, if you give us a reason to come over, then of course we will. Yeah. You are handing over the greatest source of power that you have, which is this very energized, very mobilized movement of young people, of working class people that was his greatest power. So he allowed them from the jump to sort of neutralize his greatest weapon frankly. And, um, and so I think that was kind of the fundamental error from the beginning that ended up playing out in a lot of ways throughout the campaign and ultimately resulting in the, you know, the end game that we saw. But isn't this politics 101? I mean, I don't understand how you become a politician, much less spend 50 years as a politician without understanding the difference between critiquing someone's positions or or rec voting record and attacking them personally. I mean, this is like right. this is like a basketball player, um, you know, saying, yeah, well, I'm not going to try real hard because, you know, the guy on the other team's a friend of mine. Like, that's not what right. competition <laughs> is. Right. You're a right. You're a lawyer. You you prosecute your case as vigorously as you can. That's in the code of ethics. Uh, and and I imagine it's the same for politicians. Yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic because from the, you know, neoliberal or establishment Democrats, they certainly don't hesitate to prosecute the case. You know, they may be the Washington generals against the Republicans, but it, when it turns to like, like crushing the left, they use the hardest mm. tactics that you can possibly imagine. Um, but I think 
in, in fairness, there was, cause even with Bernie using total kid gloves in 2016 and 2020 vis-a-vis Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and all the rest, there was still this overwhelming media, media narrative. Oh, he's so mean. Oh, he's so nasty. Oh, he's so angry. And there's such sensitivity on the Democratic side that plays out in a whole host of ways around doing anything that might help Trump. Right. And so the idea was if you if you go after Joe on, you know, on corruption or if you go after Joe on the bank or on anything. Right. Then you're you're helping Trump. You're just helping Trump. We need to all be nice to each other and be unified because we can't help Trump. Which, of course, is stupid because now you have a nominee who's completely untested, who hasn't faced any of these criticisms and figured out how to respond, which we saw very much, you know, he comes, emerges and goes on the breakfast club and immediately makes a fool of himself. That's in part because he was not tested by the media or by his opponents in the primary. So it's foolish. But it was also very effective at, you know, basically neutralizing the left in this primary um, and made it ultimately the least policy and issue based primary ever. I don't know. It really ultimately came down not to any of the issues, but to who did the media decide was the candidate to beat Trump? And who did Barack Obama, you know, decide and line up all the important endorsements for to, to communicate to everyone that this is the person to beat Donald Trump? And that ended up becoming the only defining issue, even though healthcare was important to people and people were on board with Medicare for all and Green New Deal, like Bernie had the right plan. But ultimately, people just wanted that media anointed electability figure more than anything. And partly you know, this dynamic of you can't criticize anyone because you're going to help Trump is to blame for that exact dynamic playing out. Where do you think this is going? As I said earlier, I lived in Spain for 20 years, right? So I've lived in a socialist country where you go to the doctor whenever you want, uh, where the, the lowest standard of living is quite good. Um, where if someone's homeless in Barcelona, it's because they've, they don't want to go to the shelter that's available to them. Um, I, so, you know, it's, it's Americans who haven't lived abroad or, or even traveled a lot, which is more than half the country don't, I think have trouble wrapping their heads around the fact that there is so much money that's being siphoned right out of the system. Um, you know, they believe these arguments. So we, how could we pay for, you know, Medicare for all? Oh, that's that's going to break the bank. Meanwhile, Trump gives all that money to the, the corporations and the billionaires. And, uh, you right. know, so you, uh, without you're, even thinking about it. Yeah. yeah and, and it happens every day and people are just hoodwinked. Um, but, you know, it feels to me that politics and media in this country, with very few exceptions, are totally in the pocket of corporations. It's all just a show. Is there a revolution brewing or are we headed for Venezuela? I wish I knew. I wish I had the answer to that. I mean, for me, this is a very dark time in a lot of ways. Of course, it's a dark time because, you know, right at the time when we most need those like big thinking reforms that 
you know, are about making the working class, not even a whole, not even like a good life, but just treating people with as human beings who have basic dignity, you know, at the very moment when we most need those things, like we've sort of, we lost, you know, that's the bottom line. All of these relief bills were, were terrible. The whole concept behind them was push people onto unemployment rather than keep them employed. Millions of people losing their jobs. Stock market's still doing great. You know, the richest among us are adding billions to their wealth as they scoop up distressed assets. And, you know, it's always heads they win and tails we lose um, in this country. And part of what I think has really dispirited me, I mean, part of it is the crushing of, of the left in that movement. Um, with Bernie Sanders ultimately being the tool that was used by the establishment very effectively to crush that energy in that movement. And that's not to say it can't come back and can't return. But at the very moment when it was most needed, it was also rendered the most um, impotent. So there's that piece of the depression. There's the fact that just on a really uh, tangible level, it's hard to dissent right now because it's hard to congregate. It's hard to have, you, mm. you know, it's, it's taking your own safety into your hands and the safety of your community to come out and protest in a way that actually demonstrates any sort of power. And I also feel this, you know, this sense of like apathy. I have until very recently anyway, that, that, People have just become so, they've just been so ground down. There's so much nihilism. There's so much cynicism that anything could change. It breaks my heart to think about the Walmart workers and Amazon workers and Starbucks workers who sent in their 10 and their 20 bucks to the the Bernie Sanders campaign. And even more than that, allowed themselves the, you know, uh, sort of emotional toll of investing in an idea that things could be better. And then to have that just crushed in such a, um, overwhelming way, you know, those things fuel a sort of nihilism and apathetic response and a cynicism that ultimately, um, sort of kills the embers of any kind of spark of mass movement. I will say the the outrage that we're seeing over um, you know the killing uh, in Minneapolis, African American man just you know murdered in my view by police officers there, and like the national outrage over that, and also the protests that it has specifically sparked in Minneapolis. And I don't condone any of the the violence or the looting or the rioting, but um, that to me was the first time of like oh. Maybe people aren't just going to take it. Maybe there isn't this just mass apathy. Maybe as people watch their jobs taken away and their health insurance and are, were already backed up to the wall and now facing eviction, et cetera, maybe there is going to be some spark and some movement. But nothing short of that is going to change because one thing we've certainly seen here in D.C. during this pandemic is there are no heroes. I mean... Who could you point to? Name one person here who's done more than symbolic opposition. And look, I'm grateful for the symbolic opposition. Like, thank you for the floor speech. Thank you for your letter saying we should do better on this bill. But that's really all it ultimately uh, amounted to. The answers aren't going to come from here. It has to be from the outside in. Have to force people in this town for the issue to be hot, hot enough to do anything different. You know, from a political perspective, I would say that because Trump has just been utterly 
pathetic and disastrous and all over the place and irresponsible on this response. I think Biden has the edge today to win, but I don't know that that lasts. I think anything could happen in this election. And I don't know. I don't know, you know, whoever wins, I'm not sure what the path forward looks like from that. If Joe wins and he brings in some, you know, standard issue, corporatist, neoliberal type vice president, which we know he will, then you're looking at not just four years of Joe, but you're looking at potentially, you know, eight years of whoever that person is and a total solidification of the neoliberal ideology and corporate fealty within the Democratic Party. I have no hope that the Republican Party is going to be anything other than what they are and what they've been for a long time. So to me, politically, that's a very that's a very sort of dim future laid down ahead of us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't mean to be, um, overly dark here, but I don't think Joe Biden is going to survive. Um, if he wins, I don't think he'll survive his first term. Um, there's a look in his eyes that I've seen, uh, you know, I'm Irish. I've, I've had a lot of older relatives who looked kind of like Joe Biden and there's a look in their eyes. They get a year or two before they die that I've come to recognize. I don't think he's going to last very long. So this VP pick is basically from my perspective, this is who Democrats are voting for. Um, but I agree with you. I, I, I think it's, I don't know. How does it feel to you? I mean, you're very deeply embedded in this. You ran for Congress yourself. You've been a political consultant. Now you're um, doing this show. You've done other shows. To a large extent, this is your life, at least professionally. Um, yeah. I'm reminded of an interview I did with um, a woman who is a marine biologist who worked uh, on coral reefs. And uh, that was her passion. And, and she was super knowledgeable and she was working on trying to create coral that could withstand climate change. Um, hmm. And at one point in our conversation, I said to her, it must be really hard for you to be witnessing the demise of this form of life that you care so much about. I'm kind of feeling that way talking with you now, like. Is it, it must be very sad for you sometimes. It must be hard emotionally to watch what's happening and to be so immersed in it um, and to see how it's pretty hopeless at the moment. I mean, the only it's the way I think about it is the moment is pretty hopeless. Like, there's just no way around that. Where we are today, it is pretty hopeless. I guess the thing I put my faith in is that it never stays the same, that there's always changes and openings and shifts and, you know, dynamics that you never could see coming. So I put my faith more in that eventuality than mm. in any sort of, like, tangible hope of this precise moment that we're living through. And I just say just, you know, as America, an American who, you know, does consider herself a patriot and has always lived in this country and like believed on some level in the exceptionalism in the nation, watching our government just sort of fail before our eyes is a deeply depressing thing. It just is. And look, I hate Trump and I'm not cheering for him, but even so to watch the utter incapacity of us to muster any sort of reasonable response on any level, any level, right? 
is, um, yeah, it's, it's really sad. It's, it's just a deeply, you know, deeply sad and depressing kind of a situation. You just feel like you're living in a failed state and it's, and that poor rot is really being revealed in real time in a way that's just fundamentally undeniable. I mean, I guess some of the things that if I had to think about some of the potentially hopeful directions, what you were talking about with the the trickle-down economics and the lie that, oh, we don't have the money for Medicare for all and we can't do that. I mean, that's been completely obliterated, right? The idea that we don't have money or couldn't spend the money on the things that we wanted to do for working people is obvious, complete bullshit and has always been obvious, complete bullshit. We can spend the entire Democratic primary of like, how will you pay for it? And then instantly, the minute that corporations were like, oh my God, the stock market is crashing. Suddenly there was $4 trillion available for them to do whatever they needed to do with it, right? So that, that myth has been blown up. And I think kind of, look, the fundamental and to me most damaging myth in America is actually deeply intertwined with this concept of the American dream that, that the ideal is this meritocratic system where if you work hard and no matter where you start, your station in life or your race or your gender or whatever, the most idealized notion that you too can be the next Jeff Bezos or, you know, Goldman Sachs executive or whatever it is. And I think that concept of the, the meritocracy and the idea that comes along with it that some people are worthy of billions and you know riches that they could never hope to spend in a lifetime and some people are worthy of like struggling you know and addiction and death i think to me that is the core rot in america and the more inequality that you have within that system the more that the people at the top have to justify their riches by truly seeing themselves as worthy versus the unworthy people down here um So I think to some extent, this crisis has undermined that conception that, you know, we're all just playing by the rules and the ones who deserve to get the top to the top are the ones that are getting to the top because we can just see how fundamentally unfair and rigged the whole thing is right now in this moment. Mm, Yeah. And you're right. That's in a way, the hopelessness is the source of hope because things don't change until things get really, really, really bad and everyone can see how bad they are. Right. Yeah, we always want to skip that step. Like I just I'd like to skip that step, but (laughs) me too. I think no skipping it. Yeah, it's like you you know, the person who vows to quit smoking after they get the cancer diagnosis. Like, should have done that a few years ago. Yeah. Um, let me ask you a couple questions because we've you know, I'm very impressed with with, as I said, with your independence and, and your willingness to sort of criticize in any direction how do you sustain that like who funds the hill where's the money come from what kind of leverage do they have over you what's going on there is this an rtv thing or what Uh, (laughs) you you, like it's kind of a joke but it's kind of not right (laughs) i've been Um, on rtv I've gotten accused of being Russian funded or Republican controlled. Um, you know, they're very selective. And if, if you criticize the people that they don't want you to criticize, certainly suddenly you're like have some nefarious intent. Um, so the, it kind of goes back to the conversation we started with about media and the media landscape. Um, 
our ability to be as independent minded as we are comes from the fact that number one, there's a real market desire for that. So it's kind of a weaponization of capitalism um, to lift up independent voices in that way. But really more beyond that is um, we get certain things from being associated with the Hill. As I said before, the main thing is that access to credibility within elite media so that the things that we say, that the guests that we have on, the news that we break actually gets picked up and lands within elite circles, which is important. You know, to me, the ultimate power is from having massive grassroots, real grassroots following and base coupled with elite awareness and impact. And The Hill helps us to have that. But ultimately, the the value of these gatekeeper type institutions is diminishing. Um, You know, if they decided that we said something they didn't like and they were going to pull us off the air, um, we could go and do our own independent thing. And, you know, I feel confident that we would do, you know, enough there and that enough people would would find us and that there are platforms out there to make that happen, that it would be okay. And so there isn't that fear of, oh my God, what if they cancel us? Because I know that there's another path and there's another route if that does happen. So that allows a lot more freedom and independence than I ever felt, you know, when I was at MSNBC and um, things have evolved so quickly in media that number one, that was more of a real dynamic back then, but also number two, like my mental sort of boundaries around that have shifted a lot during that time as well. Mm. So do you feel if if you did get that kind of pressure, you'd be willing to walk out um, and you could you could make it still be a pundit uh, independently? You could have a podcast. I could have a podcast. <laughs> you can tell me how it's done. <laughs> it's easy. No, I look, you know, you come you come to value like you figure out what you value. And um, for me, it's not an option to have someone telling me anymore, like, you can say this, you can't say that, you know, here's the sort of, here's where we're allowed to go. It's just not a constraint I'm willing to have in my work anymore. Um, whatever the ramifications of that are. Good, good. I hope you stick to that non-negotiable. That's really important. Have you ever seen a movie called Bullworth? Does that ring a bell? Yes, but it's been a while. Yeah. It's about yes, a politician yes. who who decides, uh, well, first thing he does is he's so depressed because he hates his life. He hires a hitman to assassinate him. He's a senator. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. And then, yes, as he's waiting to be shot, he starts telling the truth. And uh, and then, you know, of course, Halle Berry right. falls in love with him and, you know, and then he doesn't want to die. And it becomes a movie. But uh I just I I love how crazy it is to think about a politician who doesn't lie and, you know, what that would do to the system or to the politics. What? Okay, Al Franken, where do you where do you come down on the that? On whether he should have been removed from the Senate? Well, it's such a great example of how the, the Democrats are so afraid of any kind of tiny little offense uh, that they just totally removed him. And, and again, really bad play. It's like, oh, this will yeah. give us legitimacy to criticize Trump. Nobody gives a shit if you criticize Trump. Trump is impervious to that kind of <laughs> criticism. So you're sacrificing the super smart, articulate guy who's got more name recognition than the rest of you put together. 
Really? Uh, that's my position anyway. Well, and, and especially now in light of the fact that we see how selective they are in which, you know, accusations right. they care about and which they don't, um, you know, with, with Tara Reid coming forward in the way that she's been just this overwhelming attack against her and smear and dismissed. And look, there are some real um, inconsistencies in her representation of herself in the past, but there's also a lot of corroborating evidence that frankly, you know, and in an allegation that's much more serious than anything Al Franken ever faced. Look, if they were going to be really consistent and actually hold the line of no, like we believe women and we think that the, we think that the dynamic has been so unbalanced of, um, women never are able to come forward, they're never believed, they're never heard, and that we are going to go almost too far on this and really draw a hard line to compensate. If that was applied consistently, I'd be okay with it. I'd be fine with it. And that's, you know, that's one place to stand. But when you see that, you know, that they're going to pick and choose and ultimately it's political and in Minnesota, the stakes were low because you had a, um, you had, you know, it was going to be a Democrat who came in next. So it wasn't going to change the balance of power. Like, it just becomes so clear. And also Kirsten Gillibrand was the one leading the charge. And then when it turns around to be Joe Biden, then suddenly she's nowhere to be found. And she believes Joe. Uh, it just makes you realize that all of this was political calculation and bullshit from the beginning. And to but, me, that's disgusting. But shouldn't we start with that assumption that it's all political calculation and bullshit? Yeah, we should. Yes, we should. (laughs) But, you know, know. I mean, I really wanted to believe that this was a real I I truly did want to believe that at least some of these actors were genuinely interested in the issue and had genuinely, you know, um, good motives. Uh, And I mean, I yeah, I feel like a fool in retrospect. You're absolutely right. I should have looked at it as these are probably cynical maneuvers kirsten was trying to bolster her image and brand as the women's candidate to run for president it's all very clear but um but no at the time i really wanted to believe that these were genuine actions and sentiments and principled etc yeah yeah i i couldn't uh go that far like what you said like if we're going to draw that line to compensate for past unfairness uh I just don't feel like that ever works, you know, that sort of vengeance uh, politics, Um, you know, I don't know, reparations, for example, I I don't see how that could work, despite the fact that I totally agree with the history of oppression and current oppression and systemic racism, like no disagreement with any of that. But when you, I don't know, you go the other way and try to swing the pendulum in the other direction, I feel like it just compounds the problem. And uh, and I think we need more comedians in Congress, not fewer. <laughs> I agree with that. I agree yeah. with that. And he certainly was, I mean, probably the sharpest intellect that that we had on our side. Right. And, and the whole nature of, of comedy is that you don't shy away from things that are potentially uncomfortable because that's where the funny is, you know. And so someone yeah. who's trained in that is going to be, I think, a much more interesting politician. Do you think that um, given Trump's rise, that American politics is moving into an era of celebrity politicians? Do you think George Clooney is going to run for something at some point? Hmm. Oh, you mean literal celebrities? Because because of the, the all, there's media. also. Yeah, certainly. Uh, yes, I do. But I also think that 
the way that the news media treats their favored politicians is like celebrities anyway. They cover them like lifestyle brands or like, you know, mm. like they're the Kardashians. Um, Stacey Abrams, a perfect example. She's yeah. been kind of, and look, she's been very savvy about like, I want to give her credit. She and her team have been really savvy in how she's portrayed herself to the public, but she is, you know, very she also standard corporatist. Yeah. Right. When, they, when they stole right. the election, what? she just folded. Yeah. And, and her record, she has a record, you know, and it's kind of disrespectful to her and her, you know, achievements to not look at that record and ask what type of a politician she would actually be. There's this kind of perception that she's progressive. She's not, mm. you know, she just, that's not how she's governed. It's mm. not a judgment. It's just based. She's teamed up with Republicans to, to quash the left in Georgia. She's been a very centrist corporatist standard issue type of politician. But, um, you know, they did these fawning profiles of her, both the New York Times and the Washington Post with these sort of, you know, highly posed artistic photographs, et cetera. And it's like, you're, you're not covering a celebrity. You're covering a public official who you're supposed to have an adversarial relationship with and hold to account. And this isn't to pick on Stacey. I mean, I think they did the same thing with Elizabeth Warren or selfie lines. You know, they did the same thing with Beto and Beto. he's born to be in it and the cover of Vanity Fair and all that stuff. Like these are our new cultural icons. Yeah. So even without actual celebrities, which I think you're right. I think some will absolutely do that. But even without actual celebrities jumping in the fray, we already treat the media already treats like their favored politicians like they are celebrities. So right. I'm not sure really what the difference is ultimately. Right. Okay. Last question for you, because I know you have a family and a life to return to here, but a um, few things, <laughs> some things less depressing than politics. Uh, <laughs> Elizabeth Warren is Elizabeth Warren a progressive who is now pretending not to be, or was she always a centrist who pretended to be a progressive? Because hmm. something's not right. In some ways, it doesn't matter. In some ways, it doesn't matter. I don't even like, I, I still use the word progressive. I don't even really like the word progressive as mm. like a positive word, because I think... For a lot of progressives, they may have whatever their ideal values are that they hold deep down inside, but ultimately they're going to go along with leadership. They're going to go along mm. with the Democratic establishment. So, you know, if you're not going to actually fight for your principles when it's uncomfortable, are they really principles? Does it really matter that you have them and hold them deep inside? Not mm. so much to me. Yeah. If I have to say with her, I think she's made this calculation and this kind of, you know, political bargain where... Her work on two income trap and, and income inequality and, and particularly how it affects women and bankruptcy and the fight she picked with Joe Biden in the Senate mm -hmm. and the fight she picked with the Obama administration over some of their picks. I like I think those were I think those were real and those came from real ideology. But I think she's decided that her best path to making that difference that she claims to care about is the inside track is playing nice, being a team player, Clear. you know, see if yeah. you can angle for an administration position or maybe the VP slot or whatever. And I get that reasoning. It's very convenient reasoning too, because that's a much more comfortable 
path to walk rather than the, you know, the bomb thrower where everyone is going to hate you. Literally everyone in this town is going to, the people will love you, but everyone in this town will hate you. And that's deeply uncomfortable. So it's very convenient thinking, but I understand it. But I also think it's the road to hell. It's the road to basically, you know, the Clintons where I'm, I'm sure early in their careers, like they really believed in these things too and wanted to make a difference and got in for the right reasons. Like I, I believe all of that. But when you ultimately cede everything to power and to the idea that you yourself, like getting yourself into that position of power is the most important thing for achieving that change. It's the road to hell and it's the road to justifying almost anything. It's the road to exactly what we have today. Yeah. You know, I one thing I don't understand about politics is there must be something going on there that I don't know about that is just so amazingly wonderful that people are willing to sacrifice their dignity their reputation like everything in order to have a taste of that power i mean you look at mm-hmm. this uh, dr bricks or whatever her name is the advisor mm-hmm. to trump who sits there with a straight face while he says all this nonsense and she doesn't just get up and walk out of the room and say fuck this guy fuck this whole thing I, what is the appeal or senators who who get humiliated, all these, you know, Ted Cruz and all these other people who are just, you know, dragged through the shit with Trump and they still get up and Lindsey Graham. Like, what is what are they getting? Those guys would be rich if they weren't in the Senate. They get laid as much as they want, like drugs and money, like I don't understand the appeal. I I don't get it. I don't know what they could possibly be getting that makes it worthwhile. I think it's a really interesting question. And I I do want to dissent that Ted Cruz could be getting laid as much as he wanted. Um, But (laughs) we can argue that another day. But um, good point. I think there is I think there is something uh, very intoxicating. you know, that these like dopamine paths, um, Mm -hmm. that hits like a drug truly like literally the same, uh, response, biological response as if you were addicted to a drug, there is a certain, uh, certain thing that comes from feeling like you are at the center of what is happening and like you matter, right. Mm. You are, poised in those rooms and have that inside info and the way that people genuflect you and kiss your ass and the the sirs and the mams and the the gentle lady and like all that stuff um feeds this kind of you know addictive cycle where yeah i think it can be quite intoxicating to convince yourself that you are one of the few people that matters and is making these incredibly consequential decisions um if I had to guess, I'd say, I, I think that's, I think that's what it is. I think it's hard to get off. You know, I can even, even just, there's just this adrenaline rush from being in the news cycle every day and having it be somewhat high stakes. You, you're almost like an adrenaline junkie with that stuff. Do you think Mitch McConnell thinks he's a good person? 
Hmm. He's an interesting one, isn't he? Um, and you know, I lived in Kentucky. Um, so I, you know, I got kind of the Kentuckians perspective a little bit on him too. And this is a person who truly has no ideology outside of power. I mean, truly you can dig as much as you want to try to find some core principle core that like you will, you will not come up with one. He's not going to shy away from hurting a friend or something, you know, like Bernie did. Oh no. And no, no, no. I mean, in the way you respect it, he's very, in terms of wielding power, he really does understand it. In Kentucky, the national perspective is Kentucky is a red state, but in the state of Kentucky, it's a lot more complicated. Obviously, they have a Democratic governor now. They had a Democratic um, state house until just a couple cycles ago. They've only elected three Republican governors post-World War II. Kentucky was a, ve- a blue, blue state. Right. Like yellow dog kind of state um, populist, you know, that that kind of old school labor FDR Democrat politics, which I find really I find the politics there really interesting and fascinating. And basically, Mitch McConnell more or less built the Republican Party in that state. I mean, truly from the ground up. And he was able to sense these winds changing and got into politics as like a reformer, you know, a clean up this like anti-corruption kind of reformist um, coming from the Republican side. And there was tons of Democratic Mm. corruption and all that stuff. So that was a really appealing thing. And of course, over the course of his career, he's abandoned that piece entirely because the winds have shifted in other directions. So I don't think there are any core principles there. Does he see himself as a good person? I don't even know if he asked that question. Hmm. Yeah, I don't even know if yeah, I don't even know if that he finds that a relevant or interesting question about himself or about anything anyone else. It's almost like watching reptiles or something. It, their their hmm. motivations are so basic and predictable and uh, unencumbered by any sort of higher thought. You know, it's it's. Um, yeah, it's a strange it's a strange world. Listen, I'm going to let you go. You've you've been very generous with your time. Please keep doing what you're doing and stick to your guns because, uh, man, there are so few sources of non bullshit political analysis that uh, what you guys are doing is just crucial, I think, to the survival of the nation. <laughs> that might be overstated, <laughs> no pressure. But that's how no it pressure. feels. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> um, well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And same, and same back to you, by the way. I mean, I think we're all trying to, like, you know, find find our own little corners of honest conversation and challenging the, you know, patterns of thought that people have. So, um, so thank you for the opportunity. I'm really grateful. It's been really a lot of fun talking to you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with the very, very sharp crystal ball. Uh, check her out. Uh, by the way, her name is spelled with a K if you're Googling her. Um, but check her out on um, The Rising on Hill TV, as I said. Fantastic. I watch it every morning or listen to it. Um, really good analysis of what the fuck is going on out there. <sighs> yeah. Um, just want to uh, remind you to check out also Kettle and Fire. Kettleandfire.com forward slash Chris Ryan. Uh, we'll let them know that you came from me. And if you use the code Chris at checkout, you get 15% off your entire order of delicious, healthy, sustainable uh, bone broth. Uh, My apologies to vegans who are probably squirming right now, but um, 
you know, live and let live, sort of. All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, here's my mom with the usual rundown. By the way, I recorded a podcast with my mom. That's coming soon. Very, very special conversation, certainly from my perspective. Here she is, along with the great Carsey Blanton, reminding you that you're going to die one day. So live it up while you can. Catch you soon. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. to the ground.